From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, we talk P2P payments with Apple Pay, Facebook, and Walmart. And challenger banks in the UK and around the world all seem to have new announcements. Oh, and finally, Snoop Dogg invests in cannabis. Finally, something that makes sense. All this and more on today's show. Before we get started with the show, we just wanted to share that we've launched a brand new podcast on the 11 Media Network, hosted by our very own Sam Moore. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show interviewing some very special guests whose lives were disrupted and the role that technology played in helping them get back on track. Search for it now, Connection Interrupted, on iTunes. Go do it. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from our office in WeWork, London, Oldgate. My name's Jason Bates, and I'm joined today by my 11FS colleagues, David Breer and Simon Taylor. Hello. 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 So, how are you both doing? Good. I'm, I'm like, I, I ate a Burger King like 15 seconds ago, so I've got like that remorse feeling, do you know what I mean? Like where you know you shouldn't have done that thing, but you did it because you needed to. And that's what I did this week. Other burgers are available. In <laughs> <laughs> all, all seriousness, like we just had like a really weird, like we've recorded a, an episode of a podcast that will come soon, but at Lord's Cricket Ground, nice, random, uh, and also as good as it gets. Yeah, a couple of good meetings this week. Like I don't know anything about cricket. I figure we should have been like in awe of all that thing, but yeah, it was like a nice venue and stuff. Cricket's like some weird alien sport to me. I'm with you on that. It's just like, if you ever saw the movie Get Him to the Greek and there's this scene that cuts to like what cricket looks like to somebody that doesn't understand it, I think that describes it really, really well. You can, Anyways. And what have you been up to? Uh, I've had some really awesome meetings. Again, a lot of client work, uh, doing a lot of blockchain projects, some amazing things happening uh, on, on that front. Uh, and yeah, um, met with uh, the wonderful Costa Perrick from uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation earlier. Really good to catch up with Costa. Great guy. They're doing amazing work um, across both uh, Africa and Southeast Asia, really helping bring financial inclusion to the world. So that was that was really uplifting. Nice. Yet again, like, can I go last next time, please? Because, like, my, my burger thing just seems <laughs> inconsequential in terms of, you know, the Gates Foundation. Like, you know. I know. <laughs> How about you, Jay? Uh, lots of meetings with senior execs that have been just super interesting. Lots of people really wrestling with some major problems internally and what they can do to make change happen, to change their organization from one very successful, massive at scale business into a, an entirely different type of organization. And everyone seems to have the same problems and everyone's wrestling with this. And there's no clear answer and simple way of doing it. There's just a lot of, uh, I guess, conflict and change coming, I guess. Sounds like fun to me. Yeah, on on that happy note. <laughs> uh, before we start, we've got to wish Veronique, one of our our employees, a very happy birthday. Happy birthday, Veronique. Happy Woo! birthday. Woo! <laughs> and on that, let's introduce our guests. Joining us this week, we have Pete Townsend, not that Pete Townsend, but a friend of the show and CEO and founder of Norio Ventures. Hey Pete. Hey Jay, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Excellent. Have you had a good week? I had a fantastic week. Lots of good validation over and over again for what we're doing. With Nora Ventures, we find economic reasons to be helpful. We help established players of financial services innovate and open new markets, and we help startup scale. So I had good conversations with VCs this morning on helping to get some of these startups funded. Nice. And alongside him, we have CEO and founder of Fluidly and OBE. 
Do I curtsy? Uh, <laughs> Caroline Plum. Hiya, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. First time on Fintech Insider News, but not on Fintech Insider. No, had a great time with you guys at ZeroCon, which was awesome. And uh, great to be back. Thank you. And um, what have you been up to this week? Uh, so after a week, uh, two weeks ago, I was in Money 2020 in, El- in Las Vegas. And then the glamour from there to Glasgow. So accounting live. Uh, So this week I've been mainly following up with accountants and helping them um, figure out how they can improve cash flow for their uh, small and medium-sized business clients. Wow! And do accountants party? I mean, Glasgow is that the? You should have seen them at ZeroCon. They properly party. Really? Yeah. Wow! Now that's something. When they let their hair down, they really let their hair down, right? (laughs) Yeah. Accountants Gone Wild is like a DVD series. (laughs) (laughs) On with the news. So first up, and first of a trilogy of stories around peer-to-peer payments, Facebook launches P2P payments for Messenger in the UK. Simon, what do you think? I'm thinking Terminator 1 right now in the first of a trilogy. I don't know, wait, Die Hard movies? I don't know, what's the best trilogy here? There's got to be movie references. Um, so this one was submitted to Fintech Insider News by our own Alex S. Uh, yeah, Facebook, they're launching peer-to-peer payments two years after it launched in the US. So basically what you do is you store your debit card credentials with Facebook and they're encrypted with quote-unquote bank-level security and people would send less than $50, so less than £38. And what you do is when you're in Facebook Messenger... You click the little plus icon in the bottom left-hand side, and along with sending your location to somebody, or along with sending somebody a GIF, you can send somebody a payment. Now, what's interesting to me is um, this was on uh, kind of a whole bunch of uh, places this week. This one's a City AM article. I couldn't find anywhere where Facebook had talked about how many people were using this in the US. So they've rolled it out to the UK, but up here to pay and payments here to stay. Interesting question. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this. Oh, I was quite interested to see they thought it was all about celebrations and social occasions and festive occasions, but it seems a bit kind of stingy, doesn't it? Kind of suddenly you have to tap up all your mates for, for money at these sort of otherwise it's things. It's an emoji, yeah. but you know, it's not, a, not that exciting. But it does make you wonder whether they're positioning it for, for this market, well, the UK, but red envelopes, China, you know, that whole thing has obviously been massive for Alipay, Tencent, you know, different companies. And is is that what they're looking at? Because I doubt my granny's going to send me £10 that she normally puts into a, a birthday card. Stingy granny beat. Well, hey, uh, it's a, well, she's on a pension. Um, then, um, uh, rather than, than use Facebook. So it is interesting how that will work. The other thing that caught my eye was this thing called M Suggestions, which... I think we, we will come back to with a, the second or third story on peer-to-peer payments, where a virtual assistant recognises that you're talking about money. Hey, David, you owe me £10. And up comes the, you know, uh, the payment button for David that then declines it. And then it's like, David, you owe me £10. And up comes the payment button. I would do that continually. Yeah. <laughs> This virtual assistant context of conversation thing is an interesting way way to be. You've probably seen it in Facebook Messenger when you say, let's do something on Sunday, and it offers to set you the reminder. But then do I want a reminder inside Facebook? Have they thought through that user experience? I think with that WeChat red envelope days, wouldn't it be nice if I logged into Facebook and I had this really nice journey that taught me how to do it? It feels a bit like if you guys want to find out that this payment functionality is there, we'll sort of suggest it to you but i feel like there's maybe some hand-holding or some customer journey stuff that's missing i just don't trust it i just don't um i am i'm happy to move money on facebook that's fine but i just think it's the start of something much bigger 
right? I think it was probably about a year ago, a friend set up an unofficial meeting for me with Facebook with just somebody had this crazy idea about creating a robo-advisor off the back of Facebook social information that you could build a risk profile, right? Easy peasy. Talked to the guy about it. He looked at me like just dead face. Sorry, dude, we're just trying to get payments sorted. That's it. Mm. And that uh, first priority there, but I think there's a lot more that's going to come behind this. It's them just wrapping their head around the financial world to begin with, and then there'll be a lot more to come. I think banks have lost payments. Payments have gone. You know, payments need to live at the point of need where we're interacting whether that's on social media whether it's in real life wherever it is so so that means that we'll see just more and more of this whether it's on facebook whatsapp apple which is the the next story uh, or wherever whatever that platform is payments will live there where people are interacting but what what's interesting i think or, or the question is who's paying for it because at the moment if this is from a credit card or a debit card there's an interchange fee associated with that that someone's paying to the the bank that that produces the card so it sounds like facebook is eating that is that right i don't know Mm. well moving on to the next story apple pay cash launches in beta today letting you send and receive cash in messages is this Groundhog Day? It seems that, doesn't it? Um, I, I think we, we've talked about this a few times before. And actually, these are two things that I probably wouldn't use myself. So Messenger and like Apple Pay Cash just isn't like a thing for me, really. Um, but this is the November 7th launch they're going to be kicking this out on, which was a few days ago now. So last week to everybody listening to this now. Uh, it's going to be US only to start with, with anybody over 11.2 um, iOS I kind of feel like this one for me is still a kind of almost a everybody's trying to get into this sort of peer-to-peer payments play. And it doesn't really necessarily feel to me like this is one that Apple can really win, if I'm honest. And I'm a big Apple fanboy. Like, I know I wobbled for a couple of weeks, but I'm definitely back with a vengeance now. So, um, but um, yeah, I'm not I'm not convinced by this really sort of taking off. But I guess they've already got your credit card details for buying apps. So it's only a small step to be able to say, turn this on to, en- to enable you to pay Jason back that £10 you owe him. Yeah, and I, and I think the, you know, the trend of, uh, yeah, like, that keeps coming up. Yeah, he, he bought me dinner twice yesterday, and like now it's like I'm indebted forever. Um, but I, I think the um, like this idea of you know payments in context of what you're doing and the communication channels that you're having like totally makes sense. You know whether that's um, whether that's in a messenger thing or Facebook or even sending like a you know a Monzo me thing over Slack to you know get somebody to repay you for lunch. Apparently, like uh, it's repeatedly sending me. Um, then that type of stuff does make sense. I'm just not sure whether like messenger is the thing to do that i guess it's mainstream adoption so like even my mum uses messenger then that kind of makes sense but i don't know it just seems seems way off for me uh, i'm looking to see what the impact of this will be on all of those bank plays around peer-to-peer payments because we've seen swish and tiki and venmo and lots of banks in lots of different countries launch this peer-to-peer payment thing which has done very well for them but is that a short-term win, which will essentially be over overruled, uh, won by the big platforms? All the telcos had their own sort of um, mobile messaging services and little video services and uh, video chat things long before uh, Skype came along and long before Google Hangouts and Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and so on. This, this is I've seen this movie. It happened in the telco sector a decade ago. This movie is uh, the banks do their own versions of it. But what's happening is it seems to be playing over a longer timeline because if you look at Southeast Asia the tech companies have got the user experience right and have solved a real need 
that you mentioned earlier, that Chinese Red Letter Day, this is a social occasion at which everybody falls into doing something digitally that they used to do a different way now that they can do at distance. None of these peer-to-peer services have really caught that cultural zeitgeist. Venmo is a thing, without question. But I saw an article this week that said that uh, uh, Apple Pay Cash could be the Venmo killer. But none of these organizations outside of PayPal are really publishing their numbers and mobile payments from the US or Europe. And that's usually a sign that you're actually growing as you're publishing your numbers. So I'm, it's that user experience thing that leads to the growth, I think. Well, I think one number they have put out here is that 90% of all mobile contactless transactions in the market are Apple Pay. That's a phenomenal. Yeah. It's like nobody else doing anything but over in that market. Bear in mind in the US, you have very little contactless cards being issued. So yeah. But that's across 20, 20 countries, though, right? They've got the adoption now in Apple Pay. And I think I wouldn't write them off, given you know where Samsung Pay is or some of the mm. original competitors. And there were so many wallets. And mm. now, really, Apple are sort of seem to be winning that. Right? I had a, like, I forgot my wallet. Uh, you guys were laughing at me for this last night. And this is why I owe Jason for, for, for dinner. But I, I, for, I, forgot <laughs> my, I forgot my wallet. I this has been like the slowest burn story. <laughs> <laughs> forgot, forgot my wallet and got to the bus stop and realized that I forgot my wallet. And rather than using Apple Pay, I walked. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I was, it's almost like, I'm yeah. I'm going to pay this fine off for you, I think. <laughs> I, 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 I just, it's not a fine. Sorry. I'm not fining him. <laughs> I still don't trust it. That's the thing. Like, I still, like, the fear Are of. Are you just being grandpa, though? No, no, it's not. I don't, well, maybe I am. Yeah, like, it's, uh, like I came around to that idea pretty quickly. But I, I think it's like that fear of payment failure. And actually, I still don't like, I still don't trust it. I still don't trust like using it on my phone, using it on my watch, those types of things to actually make payments in the same way as I would do with contactless. And here's the thing, that 90% figure I'm really struggling with because the figures from Visa suggest that wherever the contactless is available, the actual mobile amount of contactless transactions is like 5 to 10% at best sometimes lower on the lower end of that uh, and then the global payments report from cap gemini suggests that they're really really low so there's some some interesting accounting of these figures going on somewhere like well i guess that takes us to our next story and i should thank sharon for submitting that last one to fintech insider news but submitted to fintech insider news by sam mall uh, are some figures walmart pay threatens to surpass uh, apple in the u.s mobile payments uh, simon yeah, uh, what a great threat. <laughs> uh, so uh, they're now available in 4,774 stores. Um, their own Walmart pay is enrolling 10,000 new users a day. So it suggests that at the uh, checkout line, they've got some sort of deal where if you sign up for this thing, we'll enroll you. Will that convert? That's an interesting question. Uh, Two thirds of the customers who try it also use the, the second time within 21 days, the CEO said. I don't know if that's great reactivation, um, but it's given him confidence that Walmart pay will surpass Apple Pay in the US in terms of use by shoppers in stores where they're accepted. So are these closed loop retail loot ways the way forward? I love the pushback. I love the pushback from Walmart and that I think they had 12 billion last year in e-commerce sales, which is great. You still have some need to go into a store for something. Now, I've only been in Walmart myself, I think twice. When I left the US 17 years ago, I think it was only in the Midwest. But there is still something about going to the shop, that experience, and being able to make it as easy as possible for the customer to get through, it, it makes sense. I love what they're doing. I think it's I think it's here to stay. I think eventually there will be, um, 
you know, a, a bigger challenge there. Starbucks is the big dog. Uh, you know, they're, they're leading the way. They've got over a billion in deposits. I was reading a, from a 2016 article and I saw an amazing... Sorry, sorry, Starbucks have got a billion in deposits? Yes. Jesus, that's Prepaid insane. is a great business to be in. Like the Oyster card ticketing thing, the prepaid cards they use for the uh, the transport for London in London, it, it's a great business. But there was a, an earnings call for Q3 with Starbucks where the CEO came out with this great quote about uh, the future of Starbucks is a is predominantly a digital relationship backed up with uh, with an experiential retail experience or, or something around that, which where he was basically saying that that this card and the ability to interact with customers and send them push notifications and for them to order and pay online. Starbucks has a digital relationship with customers. The fact that they sell coffee and you go to go to places uh, is is you know is secondary to that. And I think that there's something super interesting with that about bricks and mortar retailers and even bank branches. You know, if banks started to look at their customers as a predominantly digital relationship backed up by experiential retail, you know branches that's a very different view than the traditional omni-channel approach completely agree yeah but, but that i guess that's the thing about that service was that experience was created in a digital environment they couldn't do that before so they had to move it to that and, and actually even all of the stuff that they're doing about you know buying your head and picking up a, like mcdonald's and like just to show that i do go to other burger joints as well <laughs> then uh, you know those guys have uh, done that type of thing as well and and added to it but you know many people have done those schemes we were talking about prep the other day weren't we well we were sort of walking around we eat out a lot we probably should cut down I'm, no, I'm noticing that my wife listens to this now and she's just going to get in, me in trouble really saying all the nice places that we go to eat. But yeah, Pret has never done anything in that space. I kind of feel like the Starbucks opportunity for somebody like that would be huge. Uh, you know, that thing where you really tie people to the service, the experience of actually using it on a day-to-day -day basis, you know. Especially when you look at loyalty, which you are, you could argue is very much a digitized experience at the moment. You, you don't have real-time, intelligent, random variable rewards. You just have get a couple of extra points here or here's your have card, five here's coffees some and here we go. Yeah. And you kind of think that actually given the success of the lottery or scratch cards or all of that kind of thing, actually taking loyalty digital could be hugely interesting and this is the way that you do it. Oh, absolutely. And what I was thinking is that I would use mobile payments more if there was some loyalty wrapped into that, you know, just to start getting those points built up that I can see for every dollar I spend, whatever. Yeah. I remember about five, six years ago in the US, there was a, a conglomerate of telcos uh, that got together and they were going to launch their own payment scheme um, that was going to be mobile payments. Pre-Apple Pay, this, this predates it by some time it was rather ill-fated in its naming they called it isis um and, and this that went well and their whole value prop was we'll do payments but we'll also help the retailer with the data around the loyalty of the transactions and unfortunately and there was six pack in the netherlands and there were all of these initiatives by telcos to try and do mobile payments long before apple pay comes along and the thing that nobody's gotten right and it, even the old google wallet they their thing was we'll subsidize the cost of the interchange because we want the data and we'll work with the merchants to close the redemption loop so at google where helping create demand, build demand, bring people into your store through the location. And if you can show us the transaction data of what they bought, we can bring them back into the store for you. 
great idea, but nobody's ever executed it, except maybe Alipay and Ant Financial, and you have to look to China to see it. So that kind of closing the redemption loop, data loyalty. Jason's point about people have digitized that physical experience of here's my stamp card, let's put the stamp card on an app. Mm. Or like, here's my what my normal thing look like, let's put it on an app. Mm. Instead of thinking about how do I gamify it? How do I make it more interesting? How do I do something that's truly digital? But I guess, Caroline, this is your wheelhouse you know we're talking about business talking about apis we're Mm. talking about building new experiences do you see anything in this kind of space i think it's quite interesting to see whether you're going to go down a closed loop system like the sort of walmart starbucks model Mm. or whether actually when you're thinking about loyalty you actually want to be able to transfer you know accumulate that in some way and then choose how you a marketplace for it this was the idea behind nectar and yeah exactly several other schemes and i think also thinking about where the loyalty fits in the overall user experience i'm not sure i agree with the sort of starbucks we're going to digitize the whole thing i still want coffee to be about coffee a product is quite different to the banking service Mm. um so i think it's going to be interesting to see how people with physical retailers how they play out they might want the data that can come with the sort of digitized loyalty piece but where does it fit in their overall journey and if uh, so walmart's approach here to try and capture that as a closed loop is interesting but there was an article on a nine to five mac that was basically saying one of the main reasons why apple pay isn't used in walmart is because walmart have held out against apple pay and you actually can't use it there so that's so yeah. th- there's a and bit the physical of a mis- hardware it seemed like it was actually in the system right yeah it, it just bans it it just yeah. physically won't allow it then they're actively trying to compete and keep that data and keep that all for themselves but it's interesting that walmart have always been somebody that's super low cost super budget player we're not going to build a loyalty scheme because that helps us that gets in the way of delivering you everyday low prices so interesting sounded like an advert then that was good edlp yeah it was uh <laughs> so like we'd I, like I, to thank our new sponsors <laughs> <laughs> So I get that because a friend of mine used to work for Walmart and he used to drill that crap into me. So Adam Everett, if you're listening, that's all your fault. Um, So moving on. (laughs) Square's Jack Dorsey says we're moving as fast as we can with our bank application. David. Ooh, this sounds all kind of dramatic, doesn't it? And actually, the the image of, of Jack, have you guys seen this? In the, it's like, ooh, mysterious ooh, yeah, and moody. There's a lot of those photos where he looks sort of vaguely epic, but all confused. I want a photo <laughs> like that. Yeah. Maybe not the confused bit. Staring off into the distance, like pensive, like, I'm Jack Dorsey. I think about that. But Jack, Jack Dorsey is like killing it right now, yeah. really, isn't he? Like, for such a long time, like, Twitter was a bit of a kind of a, a, you know, a joke for a little while in terms of innovation and changes. And actually, like, the share price recently kind of, they've nailed it, right? You know, f- new features, new functionality. And People actually, don't the, like the 280 characters, but it's working. That's true. Yeah. I'm finding that very faffy, aren't you? Like, really weird. Like, the amount of long sentences I'm being sent now, it just takes all the fun out of it, you know? But you can also see in some of the quotes that he's met his match with the regulator. Well, yeah, that seems to be the thing on this one. I, I think the, the idea of, of here, and they talk about a, a banking license that they're going after. This isn't that um, they want to come out and create a, uh, a like a current account. You know, this is not them going after uh, checking accounts in the US. It's actually about being able to issue loans. So, you know, one thing that um, the guys at Square have done really, really well is, is try and sort of democratize 
some of these services and help those small businesses do things. You know, the um, square payment capability that we're seeing popping up at really small SMEs in the UK, I'm seeing it more and more and more. And the features and functionality that's built into it is pretty phenomenal, you know. So I, I think actually if they can start doing lending for SMEs that they've actually got a really good relationship with already, this could work really well. Well, they've already lent more than $1.8 billion to 140,000 businesses. Apparently, the average loan size is $6,000. So you can imagine that actually the license application shouldn't be too difficult. Well, they have lent it, but they've done it using a third-party bank exactly. already. So actually, this is them basically proving the fact that now we can stand on our own two feet and start doing They're this They're taking properly. the risk on their balance sheet. Yeah. What's interesting about Square is they started out as that tiny little dongle that you plugged into the headphone jack of uh, an iPhone. And of course, then when the headphone jack disappeared, um, so did Jack Dorsey's um, business model around that. And they pivoted quite successfully away from being that peer-to-peer credit card acceptance for you, know, you and me into building solutions for small businesses and helping them. Uh, so if I've got a small store, helping me manage my inventory, helping me manage all of the stuff I need at my point of sale so that I can accept payments, but I can also manage stock and all of my items and so on. And then it's a natural extension that they started getting into the data services around that. And then after data services, now they've got all this data and understand your business. Why wouldn't they lend to you? I, I think it's really smart. And you're seeing Jack Dorsey's ability as a, as a product person I think really come out here Uh, and it's interesting that we're seeing I think that maturity into a real profit-making business although although there was there was that one comment that I've you know that that said it all for me he said I wish I had a sense of the government timelines that's a man who's now met regulators is speaking regulator speak and and this is what he's what he has to say I I I love it I love it because it 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 is an eye-opening experience but on the point of what he's doing right? Amazon are already doing small business lending, right? What he's doing is going deep. And I talked to 11FS friend Ross Leonard yesterday about this, about vertical aggregation and going all the way through the value chain. How deep can you get with your customer? And if you're giving them hardware, you're also giving them real solutions, you're giving them liquidity. Uh, it's an interesting proposition. And I think they can take it further than Amazon can. You know, you know, big difference between the scale of the business. But I think, I think you should keep going and do more of it. I think it's really interesting. It just shows how much competition, though, there is in the space now. I think alongside, you know, Square's move this week, there was also Intuit launched QuickBooks Capital. So again, for the first time, they announced in the US that they're also going to be lending off their own balance sheet. Small business lending. Yeah, small business lending. It's, you know, it's it's huge. And they're using the data they've got in the accounting package. So, you know, clearly, um, this increasingly important. The banking space and the accounting space continue to overlap. They're blurring, aren't they? Because small businesses for so long have been underserved by the banking sector. Well, also data. You know, the fact that actually you can yeah. you can look at uh, accounting packages, you can bring that in. The fact that you know through Square, you know, what the revenue is, if, if that's the way you're doing card acceptance. There's an amazing amount of data, location, time, who your customers are, what, what your suppliers are, that gives you a much better risk assessment than I set up this business um, uh, six months ago and I'd like to borrow $5,000, please. Mm. Yeah. You're literally seeing everything going through the till and actually your, uh, your, you know, your risk model is very different, isn't it? And I think businesses are going to increasingly find it's hard to choose, you know, how, how do they evaluate their cash flow options and, you know, where do they go from there? If only they had a platform to do that on. Exactly, and like an intelligent cash flow engine. I mean, who would have thought of that idea? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so moving on, Deutsche Bank, have they really just called the end of fiat money? 
I think they might have. This was a super, super interesting article. Probably the, one of the best things I've read in a long time. Submitted to Fintech Insider News by our very own producer, Laura. Laura, thank you for submitting that. On Business Insider, Deutsche Bank uh, analyst, I think the chap's name is just here. Jim Reed. Um, so fiat money is a system um, of where it's what we call most of the currencies where they're issued by a central bank. So pounds, um, dollars, yen, yuan, remember whatever you want to call it, uh, have been decoupled from the gold standard since around the 1970s. And that uh, it was Richard Nixon that did that. And that was because they in the 70s, they were having a lot of economic hardship. If they were able to decouple, they were able to solve some of their problems uh, because they were suffering from uh, a lot of deflationary pressures from, from kind of being uh, coupled. Uh, and so the basic contention from uh, from Reed here is that the fiat currency system uh, is unstable and prone to high inflation. The reason we haven't seen that high inflation uh, has been the growth in population and the rise of a middle class that's come from emerging markets since the 1980s and a demographic boom of basically three billion people coming onto the planet and half of uh, half of those entering the workforce. Uh, that's now ending. That population explosion is now stopping that's running out so uh, that stimulus now has created uh, too much uh, liquidity in the markets not enough yield and uh, it's becoming more and more uncontrollable the end he's actually calling an era of the end of fiat currencies the end of paper money and what comes next he doesn't know this is really significant stuff yeah, I, I think it is. Um, and then we saw today as well that the CEO of City came out and said something similar to this, right? Yeah. There's, I can't wait for 20 years to go by. Well, I can, but 20 years to go by and then look back on this period and see what were the new economic principles that came to light during, you know, this, this decade, Right, because I think there's a lot at play here. Exactly what you're saying about uh, the population, about globalization. I think it's just it's going to happen. And, you know, whether you call it a defensive tactic by governments to say, well, we're tired of uh, of Bitcoin, we're tired of these cryptocurrencies. I think it's something like 95 percent of money laundering globally uh, that takes place in fiat currencies is not caught. Right. So what's the big difference? But it's all fiat currencies. I mean, it, of course, like the majority of money laundering is going to be in fiat currencies because it's it's the money that we all use. So I just struggle with this whole, you know, doom and gloom. It, sa- it sounds a bit like a, is he a cryptocurrency analyst? No, it's the opposite <laughs> of that. He, he, he is not making a point about cryptocurrency here at all. He says, look, the speculative interest in cryptocurrencies, and that's more to do with um, interest in a technology than it is a loss of faith in paper money. This is an economic assessment of the fact that we find ourselves with with incredibly low interest rates, very low growth in the developed world, developing market growth that is slowing, a global economy where the population is no longer increasing. We need something new. And he says, something's going to come along and have to replace that. I don't know what it is. This is this is just an economic assessment of where we stand looking at the market as it is today. It's nothing to do with cryptocurrency. Is this not those like City and Deutsche Bank coming out and just saying, I can't control the system anymore? You know, like, is this what we're actually seeing? It's not about the fact that fiat currency is actually working anymore it's that they can't move the things in the way that they used to be able to move to get the outcome that they want 
like I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing from the like a big bank control perspective. It's, it's not big banks; it's central banks here, isn't it? It's it's look. Central banks have had this thirty-five years decline in inflation, and they're not able to prevent inflation from rising now. This rise of inflation that we're going to see will affect us all. And if you go back to kind of the the hyperinflation we've we've seen in the past, where you know, your mortgage rates can can rapid in the value of your house can rapidly decline, and you just see mass inflation in the price of goods that could be coming back unless we can find something new because Bretton Woods in the sort of uh, after World War II was was brought in to prevent that from occurring and then in the 70s we were able to decouple it we got away with that for a long time because we had this demographic boom that demographic boom is coming to an end central bankers now and the IMF and Christine Lagarde and others are really wrestling with what comes next. I'm so out of my depth as to be untrue. Now we're getting into macroeconomics and, you know, moving I the, uh, the currency. I have to say, I, I feel the same way as you. And so I decided to Google the end of, the, the end of and see what else was ending this week. Right. Uh, and let me tell you, so uh, House of Cards, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. journalism, uh, the cult of the founder, and apparently, according to Stephen Hawking, um, the end of the world. So, you know, who cares anyway? In 600 years, we're going to be engulfed by a ball of fire. It's just the end of. Yeah, it's the end of. AI will have all the Bitcoins. Sorry, House of Cards is ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So hold on. The world and fiat currency is ending and you're focusing on House of Cards. Are you, are you a bit spacey today? <laughs> so now let's quickly take a break and hear from our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors. We never have enough time to cover every new story that's happened in the last week on the show. But don't forget, you can now head over to fintechinsidernews.com and read more about the stories we've discussed and many more besides. You can sign up and join the discussion with everyone on the podcast and many other fantastic names from the fintech world. Tell us what you thought of this week's stories. That's fintechinsidernews.com. And don't forget, 11FS, the people who bring you this podcast, are a challenger consultancy that creates and launches next-generation finance propositions for our clients, taking a startup approach to making a difference. Come talk to us at 11FS team on Twitter or hello at 11FS.com if you want to send us an email. Moving on. So if the first part of the podcast was about peer-to-peer payments, the second part is definitely about challenger banks. So many stories about challenger bank activity this week. And we're going to kick off with Revolut applying for a European banking license ahead of Brexit. David. More random statistics here. So firstly, 900,000 users across Europe. Wow. That is kind of huge for, you know, Everybody's still questioning whether fintech is really having an impact on all of this stuff. Like 900,000 customers on its own just probably says it says it. So other random statistic, Revolut has been creating a strategic relationship with the Central Bank of Lithuania. 
shocked face to everybody like to continue <laughs> the emoji Bush to yeah exactly was that a shocked face that was emoji definitely a, like confused slash shock shock i think in terms of where we're doing but so this apparently lithuania has been aggressively pushing itself as a fintech friendly destination so maybe at the course of uh, 2018 we need to be getting ourselves out to lithuania at some point but so this is uh, I, I guess revolut's continual sort of move to uh, be doing interesting things there's a quite a, an interesting aggressive view of how quickly they're going to be pushing this stuff out so obviously given their strategic relationship with Lithuania then guess where they're going first um, but beyond that they're looking at Estonia Latvia coming to Britain France Germany and Italy so these guys are not messing around when it comes to uh, sort of rolling this stuff out but I, I think it kind of opens up quite a lot of bizarre questions really you know particularly around if they start doing this and moving balances around each of these individual countries some of them that i would sort of question whether they've got particularly the you know strongest levels of regulation in the same way as we would do in the uk then it probably calls into question how many how comfortable people like the either the fco or the bank of england are going to be in terms of allowing that type of stuff to happen so this is going to be a really interesting one to watch but you know revolut are not messing about when they go go after a, a base really mm, i mean they go for a, a European banking license. And actually, I don't I don't know too much about who is your primary regulator if you uh, get a European banking license. Maybe that's something we'll have to have to look into. But apparently 20 other banks are also applying for EU banking licenses and they hope to get a license effective from the first half of 2018. So that's that that's coming up pretty quickly. And suddenly you've got another player in the market who's arguably pivoting from a, a pure play travel card to something more akin to a current account and that, you know, everyday financial services spot. Yep. A, a friend of mine, Barry McCarthy, he's got a startup called the Sure Hedge, and he is a currency geek extraordinaire, right? And when I was talking to him about, listen, look at all these challenger banks, which one should I go for? He said, look no further than Revolut because it's all about currency um, and they've nailed it. And with the amount of people traveling around Europe and the annoyance of changing currencies, what better way to do it than to have your card loaded up with all these different currencies beforehand? So it makes sense for him. May not you know, make sense for everybody to have that as their number one challenger bank because everybody has different motivating factors to what they're going to pick for their own digital experience, right? But for those that are doing a lot of traveling and a lot of cross-currency uh, commercial activity, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, they clearly hit upon a really great hook to drive customer acquisition at a low cost. You know, it had, they were the first people to come out with, you know, really great travel card products. And the, interesting to see how many, how that translates into move to a real current account and a very different relationship. If you're someone that onboarded for, you know, cheap currency, uh, you know, are you about to move your relationship, banking relationship to them or not? Or where but, do you see them? But of course, there's also a question of how much supporting 900,000 customers is costing them because they're offering essentially uh, wholesale currency rates to a retail market and that can't be a good thing for the you know for the bottom line so that's an awful lot of customers they go there i assume burning vc money in which case you're going to have to very quickly turn this thing into something with lending attached or with fees attached or or you know for businesses well, it's interesting to see their business offer because they really, that's only three months old now and they somehow onboarded 16,000 businesses in a very short piece of time. So, space of time. And it sounds like it's sort of a slightly more mid market segment of business as well that has a slightly more international outlook mm. um, than perhaps some of the smaller players. It's an interesting strategy. Interesting business model as well because a bank should be able to do 60 to 70% margins on FX, right? And when you look at peeling away all of the bank infrastructure that's been there for eons and you go with the latest and greatest new mm -hmm. technology, you can lift those margins up to, 
you know, 80 to 85%, um, which is pretty good, right? And then- Assuming it's charging the same fees. Exactly. Uh, but when you drop from three to 4% down to 60 bips, you know, you're looking at a, a different story, but still there's a big cost component there that just gets clawed out of that business by going with virtualization and containerization and all these new concepts of Lego blocks as your tech platform, right? And it makes a lot of sense to be able to do it that way. Well, they're going to be fighting another challenger bank that's launching in the UK, N26, 2018. They're on their way. They really are. So N26 announced last week their US expansion through a partner. Um, they'd been in, I think it was 19, or it was somewhere in the teens markets across Europe and hadn't come to the UK. They'd been holding off because of the whole Brexit piece. Uh, but apparently they've developed full integration with the British payment system, which means you can replace your regular ban- bank account with an N26 bank account from day one so um you know 11 fs pulse we've been fans of the journeys that we see uh, from n26 for some time they've got 100 digital onboarding no branches like a lot of challenger banks they're here in the uk market but they seem to have been opening in lots of different markets but then they're not necessarily publishing all of their customer numbers in all those markets they established one heck of a base out of germany did well for a while and now seem to be trying to expand everywhere and becoming transatlantic but you know we've we've talked to valentine the ceo for a number of episodes on fintech insider and he seems adamant that they can do it that they're executing and they're getting there so one to watch for sure it's very much a different strategy isn't it because you see players actually finding one market and trying to go deep and really build up a following and then n20 seem to have actually gone very thin they've as far as i remember they're in the hundreds of thousands of customers rather than the millions of customers yet being in 19 19 territories that or teens that's actually a lot of markets you've entered uh before you've really expanded and and uh, you know dominated that area Absolutely. And they've been one of the pioneers of that partnership model as well. So obviously now Starling are doing really well on partnering with, with a number of players uh, like Flux and, and so on. Uh, but N26 have been partners with TransferWise because we were talking about Revolut a moment ago. They were one of the first to partner with TransferWise for all of their FX. So this model of we're going thin, we're going to lots of markets, they're going for that platform play. And of course, Peter Thiel is one of their backers, um, of course, one of the founders of PayPal. So there, there's some there's some pedigree there. Yeah, I... I I like their U.S. ambitions as well. I think there's an opportunity there. Um, but I think what gets underestimated from time to time in the U.S. is how long some of this has been available, right? I was talking to my brother-in-law, the original guy with the fintech joke being about dolphins. Um, and I told him what I was what I was up to these days. And he said, what's fintech, right? And went, went on and told him about it. And he said, well, yeah, I've already got a challenger bank type of thing. It's called USAA, mm-hmm. just military bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those in the military that are stationed somewhere overseas, you need a fully digital experience to keep things running back on the home front with your own finances. They're incredible. And it's all there. Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Android Pay. Unlock with your face. They've done all that stuff. They were one of the pioneers of that. Fully integrated. And I remember with, you know, Quicken back in 1999, 2000, I was doing all this downloading, uploading of transactions with great categorization of where I was spending my money. All this stuff has been there for so long. It's just that now it's here, right, on this side of the Atlantic. And and we've had people come in and do it with a lot more of an innovative business model. And now they're bringing it back over, right? And I think there's a real opportunity to knock out some of these players with a lot higher cost basis. So thank you to uh, Miles T for submitting that story to Fintech Insider News. Um, in a new Monzo does a thing spot, 
It's another jingle we need to make, isn't it? Yeah. Monzo does a thing. Uh, Challenger Bank Monzo raises another £71 million from Goodwater Capital, Stripe and Michael Moritz. David. Yeah, big amount of money, right? £71 million to... And actually, I guess this is a bit of a break. The last couple of rounds on this, I don't think have been quite this this high. The thing that sort of stood out to me on this one is like £280 million doesn't seem like a lot. Company really. valuation-wise. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, it feels like how much would people have to actually spend to buy it? That was the thing that I'd kind of think. I know, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about various different people coming in and trying to buy Monzo, the the sort of big Well, there was the article uh, in City AM about we get offers every other week from Tom Blomfeld um, sort of thing. Yeah, the, the prettiest sort of guy at the, the party type, met scenario type thing. But um, for 280 million, like if you kind of think most banks have kind of committed a billion on transformation, then like somebody needs to double that number and throw it at Tom because like this could be the answer of fixing your bank, quite frankly. So I wonder if they would even take it at that. But um, and I'm really quite intrigued about whether this 71 million is about continuing to sort of re- evolve the technology stack that's there or whether this is actually starting to be a, a play about how do we scale this beyond uh, kind of a London base. You know, if they're really, really serious next year about going from, what, what is it, 500,000, 550,000 customers to really making a dent in all of the big players in the UK, then getting out there and marketing this to, you know, random people in Norwich and random people in Cardiff and all over across Sheffield, you know, like those people need to kind of know about this type of thing. And actually, maybe a big part of that is going to be about getting out there and making it happen. But then looking at this from a um, a critical point of view, you could say, well, this is a company that's been around for a couple of years. It's got 500,000 customers. It's got some good PR. It's losing 7 million a year. It's not making money. And you just valued it at 280 million. Now, the, uh, now, that's all valuation on its future performance and the confidence in just the way the team's executing and the brand and the buzz and everything else. And obviously, being a shareholder, I, I fully support that. I don't think it's just about the, the future earnings, though. Uh, the, the approach that they've actually taken in terms of the technology that's been built and everything that actually sits there. You know, we've heard some crazy valuations about what big consultancies try to charge people to emulate some of these things. So, you know, 280 million you know that that it just doesn't seem like a lot to me. It's still twice compare. their valuation from February, though, right? So they've been yeah, impressive. They've, they've, so. On that side, everybody's happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doubled in a, in, a, in a few months definitely is is awesome. But I think that point from David, I just want to echo that, like that you saw, remember a couple of years ago you still you see the big banks announcing we're announcing our 1.5 billion pound transformation program or we're going to spend two billion dollars to transform our business and actually a lot of the banks that we speak to are frustrated because they've spent that amount of money and not gotten any results this is speculation will they get there won't they get there but there's a belief in the investor community that they will and that is significant um but the the questions remain you know the critical questions are but i I also like the fact that it's sensible i mean no one wants down rounds no one wants to really go and then have to 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 move back it shows i think um maturity in okay it's a double evaluation it was in february but it's not crazy Uh, and it's also not the amount that you would have to pay in order to buy the thing you know it's uh it's a sensible number it's not going to raise eyebrows it's not going to you know freak out investors uh and it it paves the way to the next the next rounds and the and the uh, the next approach there's potential value there the question for me is do we convert all of this excitement around the prepaid card into working current account customers and i think that's the risk which you know is discounted but there's upside for um, oh yeah 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things when, when a fintech is doing a big raise, I love it. But what people tend to forget or not know is that part of that raise they're doing gets stashed away as dead money as capital, right? Because the more the bigger you get as a fintech, the more you're thinking about regulation, the more you're thinking about capital. If you're doing actual trading, you're thinking about trading margins and that just needs to be squirreled away and you can't touch it. You can't use that for your burn. You can't invest it. You can't use it to build your platform. Um, so if they're doing a 70 million raise, I'd say 20 million of that at least is going into the into the coffers. And there's. Um, different restrictions around that. You can't put covenants on top of it. That means that you're able to attach it to another debt offering. Um, so, you know, you can look at that and say, well, great job. They raised 70 million. But, you know, there, there is a big component of that, that it's untouchable. That component that's untouchable then supports the business model on lending, on overdrafts, on turning, you know, that 7 million loss into breaking even yeah. in using those current accounts and starting to find a way. Yeah. So meanwhile, David, uh, uh, and oh, I should, by the way, thank uh, Emeka Nuanu for submitting that story to Fintech Insider News. And Emeka also submitted another story about uh, Monzo's arch rival Starling. Starling Bank bolts to Yolt Money app. Yeah, I thought this was quite an interesting one, to be honest with you. Like, there's lots sort of made about, um, and you know, again, Starling have been absolutely killing it in the last um, six months or so in terms of the things that have been being released. Um, but this is actually one of the ones where they're not uh, integrating something else into their platform, but making it ridiculously easy to for them to be integrated into somebody else's. So if you don't know Yolt, it's essentially PFM capability. You can aggregate all of your different accounts into it and get a really good full view of, of everything that you've got. Um, if you haven't checked out the integration process between actually onboarding your Starling account into the Yolt Money app, it it's so easy. You know, I've just watched a YouTube video of it and it's like 30 seconds later, you've fully integrated all of those things and actually all of your data is then being mapped into it to allow you to have that full view. Really, really good. So, I, you know, I think this is um, this shows, and actually if you kind of talk about PSD2 to any big banks, actually they're all about, well, how do I get my hands on the data and how do I integrate people into me and how do I become the platform? Um, and very much, I guess, a lot of the stuff that we've heard from Starling is about their marketplace. But this is them showing, I think, real um, level of uh, kind of sophistication around actually what, you know, APIs and all this capability actually is and integrating into something else and making it better. I think it's one of the first user journeys you've seen where you start to get a feel for how this stuff will work because you go into Yolt, you go down the list, you pick Starling, it then deep links into the Starling app which means it opens that app on your phone. You authorize there. You say, yes, I'm going to give it the uh, the permissions that it needs. And then you're back into Yolt. Mm -hmm. And that whole user journey around adding, deleting, managing API connections. This isn't like Facebook where I can connect 50 apps and forget about them later. These new PSD2 and open banking players can make transactions on my behalf and get all of my data. So there's, there's going to have to be some quite sophisticated management of of not only this journey of actually going in and authorizing, but then the the management, the monitoring, and the removing of these these integrations as we go. And I've I've just not seen those journey designs, you know, done basically. This was such, you know, again, everybody who's kind of listening, go and watch that that process. It was so slick. So uh, it kind of making me sort of start to feel that actually that porting of authentication outside of something and, you know, wondering whether there's a kind of a, a play here about testing this out from an identity perspective further down the line from what they're looking for. 
What do you think, Caroline? I think it's interesting to see um, how much the kind of banking player has can influence that journey. So Starling's obviously very open to it and therefore is making that really seamless. But in the kind of regulatory setup from open banking, there's nothing to make that journey sort of a big red flashing button that says, don't do this, it's really scary. So it's how the sort of incumbent banks are going to handle that journey and really whether they can put people off the user experience or whether actually they're going to make it that seamless platform play. Well, speaking of incumbent banks, let's not forget that Yolt was actually developed by ING. And ING had not been in the UK retail banking market, but this is their account aggregation platform. Now they're working with Starling to aggregate other people's accounts. I wonder, is this a really nice Trojan horse from ING and have Starling been naive here? Is this the downsides of open banking or is this good for Starling customers? I'd love to to play with that. Well, I guess what we haven't seen is GDPR play out on this because, okay, all of the data is coming across but what are you giving them permission to use it for? And when that starts to to, to come in, where are the questions there? And when you add investing views into that eventually, you'll have Mifid too. So lots of regulation coming. Yeah, I mean, I think given that GDPR is coming in May and open banking in January, I think the journeys that you're seeing now are always going to be GDPR compliant already. Mm-hmm. So I do think the, but the devil's in the detail. You know, it's actually how does it, how does the user feel and who ends up owning the relationship? Does that relationship really end up in Yolt or does it end up on Starling? Mm-hmm. And it's the person or the entity that I think captures the relationship that ultimately gets the value. Well, you only have to look back uh, to PayM. I mean, that, that's, that's the really the, 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 the classic example of a service that should have been amazing. So for international listeners, this was essentially a database that connected people's phone numbers, which, which to some extent give you a, an ID, an individual you know, identifier, that then connected that phone number to your account number and sort code. So the ability to say, I'm going to send David money because he's in my address book. I can do a lookup and away you go. All the banks signed up to that. That should have been amazing. I should never have had to remember anyone's account number and sort sort code again yeah now you can do apple cash or venmo it so why didn't it work i think it's trust ultimately isn't it you have to believe that if you're going to hand over these details to a third party that you're going to get that value exchange back and you know if you don't fundamentally believe that you're worried about it you're not going to do it i i think it was just the user experience or or maybe (laughs) (laughs) this is sign and trolling yeah it was it was user experience like you you asked every individual bank to implement PayM in different ways inside their mobile app and i guess this is the point you were sort of prodding me to make which is that when every individual bank has to implement these experiences and manage the data themselves how is that experience going to be consistent how is that experience going to work and yes it's nice to have a regulation or uh, even a kite mark like PayM try and get the banks to do something so if if I'm going to share my data between different apps but each bank helps me share my data in a slightly different way even with a consumer brand over the top of it one that consumer brand like Visa or MasterCard I know who they are but I don't know who Pay MR and and so I need that experience too it needs to work and it needs to be slick and it needs to it needs to solve a problem for me well the classic I mean I I'm a geek for this stuff and I tried PayM a number of times and this is the journey. You say, yes, I'm going to send it. Who to? I'm going to send it to David. Okay, no, sorry, David's not registered. Okay, I'm going to send it to Simon. No, sorry, Simon's not registered. Now, how many times do you try? before that journey ending in a brick wall, you say, well, that's it, that's it, I'm done now. So there was no follow-on. There was no get David to do it, send him a text message. There was nothing in there that a company, if, if your entire being depended on this thing working, how do you make that seamless and how do you, how do you in- 
in, uh, make that virality happen. And I think Zelle in the US is an interesting answer to that because they have their standalone app. So Zelle being not just a brand for how do you do peer to peer from my bank to my banking app to uh, to to my peers who have a have bank account, but it, here's a dedicated app that I go into. But now they're squarely in the space of uh, dealing with Venmo and PayPal and now Facebook and Apple. The peer to peer marketplace does seem to have a lot of people playing within it, but not a lot of winners. But I think the, I guess the point bringing it back to the API journey is just to Caroline's point that actually if it's down to a bank who may not have the incentive, the incentives around really off, offloading this relationship to a PSD2 uh, open banking player, then what could they put on that screen to say, well, are you sure you want to give all of your data to this unknown company? Um, click here if you would like to continue. But by the way, these are the liabilities and you know these are all the problems that could, you could cause. Are you sure? Are you sure? How many? If, if you've not mandated what that journey looks like, then you might kill it with just uh, verbiage. Uh, well, I think the sort of technical, it's very much a technical specification at the moment, isn't it? And yes. the regulatory specification, it's not in any way the spirit of the law. It's very much the letter of it. And so you could destroy the spirit quite easily whilst fulfilling the letter. I think that's the challenge really both for the open banking implementation body in the UK but PSD2 generally. And just bring it back to the user as well. Um, you know there there's this concept of impulse plus FOMO that can be quite interesting and what that does to trust, right? So I see something that I want to use, I do it on impulse, I have a fear of missing out my element of trust kind of goes out the window and says, I just want to do this thing, right? So I get all my details in there. If I hit a roadblock at all, that impulse is gone. That fear of missing out is gone. I'm done, Yeah. right? So moving on, uh, a lot of people are talking on FinTech Insider News about a story submitted by Sharon. Online retailer ASOS offers buy now, pay later option with Klarna. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? So for those of you that don't know, ASOS is a retailer in the UK, um, online retailer. They are it's mostly clothes, shopping, shoes, and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, it's really well known for having one quite a lot of variety of brands that you can and they send you clothes and their delivery and their distribution is really really strong but also they're very very good about if you give them a return they'll tend to refund you they don't ask any questions you can buy 15 things try them all on send 14 or even 15 of them back and you just get a refund and that has built a tremendous amount of customer loyalty uh, and even some people that buy clothes and wear them and then send them back but we won't talk about that um so Klarna is the startup that has the pay later option very popular in europe where um, credit cards aren't as popular um, so the, they allow you to pay later for up to 30 days and there are no fees with that so it's like an escrow account so this try before anything you... from that what's the benefit to them for that so they're holding that money in escrow with the ascension uh, i think the retailer is more likely to get a sale because this money's held in a third-party pot and so because the retailer is more likely to get a sale they pay Klarna a little bit of money as a result rather than it being an interchange fee and the, the bank's actually getting the value so i really like this comparison with the credit card because as you say this is almost a single use single purchase credit card you buy now the Klarna give the merchant the money now. You have 30 days to pay it back. Klarna makes some money from on each purchase with a percentage fee. Um, they have an agreement where uh, the, uh, the end customer has to give them the money 
but there, there doesn't seem to be a, if you don't give me the money, I'm suddenly going to charge you crazy interest rates, although I'm sure that could that could come in. But ultimately, you're not applying for a credit card that you can use in general use. You're applying for that one-off 30-day window in order to buy something, try it, maybe make your way to payday where you can you know, then pay back the shoes that you bought. But the interesting piece here was the, the discussion on FinTech Insider News wasn't about the business model or the intelligence of it, but about whether it was really good for end consumers to have that button on the checkout where you can buy now and, hey, I'm just not going to pay for 30 days. And do people get into trouble? Yes, it's great for ASOS. Yes, it's good for Klarna. But is it ultimately good for that end consumer? I don't think it is. I mean, any time that you just have that opportunity to just let something go for 30 days, it goes out of mind. And it's something that you may not come back to. I, I'm not a fan. I don't think it's going to last. There is that sort of drip, drip, drip of easy credit, isn't there? You just think our consumer is going to get themselves into more trouble um, with something that actually just thinks, you know, just put it off to one side. And I'm not totally convinced that I think as a consumer, you think, what is this like? And suddenly, I think the only thing you know it's similar to is a catalogue brand. So actually, suddenly ASOS, which is slightly more of a premium marketplace positioning, has sort of put itself in the same category as perhaps Littlewoods or something. Or um, And is, is that really what their brand was about? Buying so, and layaway, as yeah, they'd say in the US. Yeah, it feels a little bit different, really. Um, it's from a, from a brand positioning. Yeah, it was I'm sure it's convenient, right, for consumers. Yeah. It was lost on me from the beginning anyway because I shop twice a year. (laughs) (laughs) Not the target market. (laughs) There have also been all kinds of warning about uh, consumer lending. You know, everyone's coming out and saying this is going to be a big problem. And at the same time, the ramp up of small business lending. You know, the, the dominant business model of how do fintechs make money is lending. Uh, and there isn't that subscription. There isn't that paying for services. It's we'll lend you some money and charge you some interest or fees and everything on top. So are we building an entire ecosystem of players, small and big, who make money on lending, who are pushing more and more lending to more and more people, whatever the corporation, whatever the size, uh, whatever the, the segment? Hopefully the PFM players will start to be on the other side of that lending coin, at least at least tell people in advance that they're getting yeah. into trouble and perhaps yeah, they will optimise differently. more data, you can make informed decisions, hopefully, around, with personal finance management and business finance management as well and really understand your cash flow position and really understand where you sit. How about that? Thanks. It's almost, it's almost like that would help in some way. It's almost if, if somebody would just build that. What would that look like? <laughs> Something like fluidly, I'm sure. So finally... This story is interesting. Snoop Dogg's venture capital firm, I love the fact that Snoop Dogg has a venture capital firm, is leading an investment in a cannabis lab testing company. This is all that is right with the world. This is what you do when you take on too much credit, I think. (laughs) I have one thing to say. Bow, wow, wow. Yippee-o, yippee-yay. Where are my dogs at? Does he look for a really high rate of return? Is that... that So, we poo-poo this, but the global cannabis market will hit $7.7 billion by 2017. That's the legal taxable cannabis market. And it's expected to hit $31.4 billion by 2021. Now, if you consider that the global art market is $54 billion, the like this the, the global cannabis market is growing as a taxable legitimate industry across the US so these VC firms and you know developing labs that have testings and regulations sold within the state seems like a business that's surprisingly legitimate sounding Snoop Dogg has you know come from a long way to to make it to the top and he's really really uh, kind of doing something real but it here. does seem there was there was that 
great thing about timing. You know, all great startups, all great businesses have that timing element. And here, California's recreational cannabis market opens on January 1st, 2018. And the state's Bureau of Cannabis Control mandates that all medical cannabis... That's that's very different, isn't it? It is, isn't it? (laughs) One of them's like the the party pooper. The other one was like, go crazy, you know? Yeah, that bureau sounds like it wouldn't get much done. (laughs) They've mandated that all medical cannabis be lab tested for specific levels of pest size and other chemicals and everybody be issued free twinkies and is developing rules for the recreational side of the industry so here's snoop investing in canalysis a cannabis lab testing company uh, although previously he'd, he'd invested a two million seed round i'm sure there's a pun in there somewhere uh, in trellis a cannabis inventory management firm. you might say he dropped it whilst it was hot <laughs> <laughs> So Snoop is going after, with his VC, the entire supply chain. You know, we see that... <laughs> you know, we've, we've had rappers uh, talk about selling drugs on the corner. Snoop's taking this to a whole new level. I love the fact that, though, he's so involved. Like, he's been singing about this for, like, the last 25 years, right? He's, like, get, really getting involved in something he loves, which is nice. So. <laughs> I like that every rapper becomes an entrepreneur, but Snoop has stayed true to what he's always been about. And he's doing he, he has gradually been an advocate for first medical marijuana and then the recreational use of marijuana and then legitimization and taxation of that as an industry and then become a VC within that industry. Yeah, I think people in Bitcoin could learn a lot from him, really, right? Hey, they're working on it <laughs> you got to listen to blockchain insider for that oh wow you yeah, wow you no i it took you till the last seconds of the last minute of fintech insider to to push your own podcast i'm just saying that the podcast that drops this coming thursday is going to be the greatest story ever told in bitcoin that's that's all i'm going to say there was a 280 million dollar hack there was a cancellation of a major upgrade to bitcoin check out blockchain insider and on that note this wraps up another new show Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out about you, Pete? Yep. So given that I am an 11FS part-timer as well, you can get me on Pete at 11fs.co.uk, as well as on Twitter at Pete Townsend NV. Great. Caroline? I'm Caroline at fluidly.com or fluidly.com or at cplum. And where can people find out about Fluidly? Um, Follow our Twitter at fluidly or fluidly.com. Nice. And as always, if you want to get in touch, you can find us on at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook on our Fintech Insider page or on YouTube for exclusive content. Or you can email podcasts at 11fs.com. That's an awful lot of all. Yes, we are everywhere, aren't we? We are <laughs> everywhere. Developed omnipresence, almost like Snoop Dogg. Mm. 11FS is a challenger consultancy that creates and launches next generation fintech propositions for our clients taking a startup approach to making a difference come talk to us at 11fs team on twitter if you like what you've heard this week and you can put up with the puns don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on itunes thanks for listening see you next time